Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This episode features Labour leadership contender Rebecca Long-Bailey. I just want to thank everyone who's come to see me on tour so far. Uh, Crew and Leicester were absolutely brilliant. And uh, next week, I'm out on the road again. I'm in Darlington at the Hullabaloo on the 5th of March. There's about two tickets left for that, so get on the website quick, mattford.com slash live. I'm at the Hexham Queen's Hall on the 6th of March, the following night, staying in the North East. And then on the 7th of March, Saturday the 7th of March, I'm at the Bedford Quarry and tickets for all those dates are selling really quickly. Uh, I'm back at the the London South Bank Centre in the Purcell Rooms on the 10th of March, then off to Maidenhead, Northern Farm on the 14th of March. Leeds on the 18th of March is almost sold out. There's about five tickets left. That's for the Hyde Park Book Club. And I've added a second date because Brighton has sold out. So I'm doing Brighton again on the 9th of June at the Comedia. So the earlier date, um, which is sometime in March, the 29th of March, is already sold out. I'm going all over the country, including I can't wait to do Nottingham. Um, at the Spiegel tent, which they're going to erect in Market Square, which is very exciting. And the Sheffield Lead Mill, Glasgow, Edinburgh, all over. You can get tickets for all those dates at mapford.com slash live. So this episode features Rebecca Long-Bailey standing for the Labour leadership. Obviously, we had Lisa Nandy on the show last month at the live event. So brilliant to have two Labour leadership contenders back to back. And I ask Rebecca all the things you'd expect me to ask. We talk about uh, her own brand of socialism, why she thinks Labour lost, how Labour can win uh, next time, what made her join the Labour Party and more importantly, what she has from a Chinese takeaway. Hello, good evening. Hello, there we are. Hello, good evening. Thank you very much. Can we cheer if you've been here before? Can we cheer if this is your first time? Oh, welcome, welcome, newcomers. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, the Tory uh, MP for Lee, James Grundy. Uh, it turns out has been uh, <laughs> this is amazing. If you haven't seen this, you're in for a treat. Um, and I use that phrase uh, almost specifically relating to the story. There's a video of James Grundy recently elected in the December election of him in a pub in Wigan getting his cock out. <laughs> and there's two women filming going, go on, get it out. And he drops his trousers and she goes, lift up your shirt so we can have a look, which isn't the most complimentary thing to be told. <laughs> it must be somewhere. Look up your shirt. Where's it fucking gone? <laughs> um, Joe Platt, who's the Labour MP, defeated. Fair play to her. She put out a statement. She said, um, if anything, I feel sorry for him. He probably never dreamed he'd end up being an MP for an area where he used to get his todger out. <laughs> sort of suggests that this happens a lot in Wigan. I mean, part of the problem is, he did this, then got elected. This is going to become part of Conservative candidate training. <laughs> right, you've uh, done your media training course, yet? Yeah? You know how to rebut questions, yet? Yeah? You know how to uh, turn a negative into a positive? Have you got your cock out in a Wigan pub yet? <laughs> Don't forget to film it. Yeah, mobile phone's fine, or uh, you might need a long lens on that one, mate, to be honest. Uh, I mean, next time you see a flasher in a pub, show some respect. That could be your future Prime Minister. <laughs> you never know. Um, Rishi Sunak, uh, the, the new Chancellor of the Exchequer, got into uh, hot water uh, this week. Uh, some people really stirring up. So it's uh, picture, there's five more of these. And, uh, <laughs> drinking Yorkshire tea. Um, uh, a real storm brewing. Uh, God, it's getting worse, isn't it? Um, it was fascinating watching people get so annoyed about Rishi Sunak um, posing with, with Yorkshire tea. I had a similar thing this way. The stuff people say to you online sometimes is hilarious. And I, I never really like to do personal stuff, but this just really made me howl. Jeremy Corbyn put out a tweet earlier in the week where he said, where's Boris Johnson? And uh, as a hilarious topical quip, I put, running the government, you enabled him to fall. Now, <laughs> just a silly comment, right? Uh, but it's sort of grain of truth at the heart of it. But he, uh, someone replied, I, I've, I've shown this to so many babes. 
One million spent to undermine him, and fat boys like you with minuscule penises did the rest. <laughs> but sad little fat men will be sad little fat men regardless of who is Prime Minister. Um, so I'm looking forward to asking Rebecca why she sent me that. <laughs> In the second half. Um, people are saying they're going to boycott Yorkshire tea, but that's silly. Only, I mean, the rule of boycotting is only boycott stuff you don't use anyway. Uh, that's why I like to boycott Ferrari's porches and uh, I realised that I said porches by mistake instead of porches, but I live in a flat, so the, the point actually does stand. Uh, an unnamed uh, shadow minister this week suggested that after Sinn Féin did relatively well in uh, last week's Irish election, Labour and Sinn Féin should form an alliance. Uh, this unnamed shadow minister said it was basically our manifesto and Sinn Féin have had a surge. Now, uh, Sinn Féin got 24.5% of the vote, which in a few years will be seen. Uh, as a kind of surge in Labour circles, perhaps, but <laughs> I didn't realise Sinn Féin was standing on a manifesto free broadband as well. Uh, their own slogan, of course, broadband don't disband, which uh, <laughs> don't have well in some communities. Um, I mean, I'd be suspicious if they offered to plug it in for me themselves. We've got a couple of gays who are good at wiring stuff up. No, it's fine. I'm... <laughs> I don't myself. Uh, Sinn Féin's manifesto was called Giving Workers and Families a Break. Um, there are two great lines in the Sinn Féin manifesto, which I'm sure you all read. Uh, one of them is, uh, when it comes to defence, which was a chapter I, I read with a certain amount of relish, it says, our defence forces primary objective is to defend the state against armed aggression. Um, yeah, with no long on the end. I was very surprised. Uh, and then there was another line where they said, we will actively promote conflict resolution and peaceful settlements. Now, I imagine on the first draft, there'd have been a couple of jokes in there. They got ironed out. Jerry, get in here. Who's at it apart from the prodies and up the rock? <laughs> Get in, are you? Uh, they also, it, the shin was a major action values. Even when they're talking about normal, non military stuff, they can't help making normal stuff sound military. So they're talking about schools and healthy eating, and they want to legislate for a, a zone around the school to not be allowed to sell any junk food, and they call this a no fry zone. It's <laughs> <laughs> fucking incredible. Someone's breached the no phrase or non leash hell. <laughs> Richard Bergen, um, uh, who's oh, a friend of the show. Uh, you know, friend, of the show. <laughs> friend of the career, in fact. Uh, I've got a mortgage to pay, and I feel like he's really going to help over the next few years. But he said, uh, he said, I would give, I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong, by the way. No, I would. I, I, no, I, I would, I would. I would bring Jeremy Corbyn back. I would offer him a role in the Shadow Cabinet. Um, we don't know what role, Shadow Foreign Secretary, Envoys of Israel, we don't know what role that would be, would be offered. But Richard Birkin has used this as a platform for a lot of his other ideas. He gave a great music, I think, as a party. Uh, we, should have, we, should have, we should have a podcast and a YouTube channel. But what the fuck are you doing? By the way, if you want a decent political podcast, Richard, exactly, Nick Robinson's political thinking, uh, which is uh, a superior product, but um, I mean, what a podcast, uh, a YouTube channel, what next? Fashion label. Uh, no, sure, yeah. uh, um, fashion label, record label, cereal, people do eat cereal, we should have a label cereal for people. Um, 
he's like, he's like an apprentice candidate. Just fucking people are constantly coming up with shit ideas. Actually, I think we should have Jeremy as team leader. He got fired last week. He's not in it. Well, I'm loyal to him, even if you're not. No, Alan Sugar fired him. Well, he would. He is a Zionist and an enemy of peace. He, uh, he's also suggested that Labour should have their own tabloid. We should have our own tabloid newspaper. And he said, when I get on the bus in the morning in Leeds, people have the Metro and in London, they have the Evening Standard. We should have a Labour tabloid, and it should be written in a tabloid style, um, which I would love to see uh, a, a Labour magazine covering Labour issues written in a tabloid style. Um, it would be... Uh, I'm trying to find where I've written these fucking jokes. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Holidays for a tenner um, to, uh, to, to Venezuela. Uh, there's always a weight loss story, isn't there? There's always a sort of sensational celebrity weight loss story on the front of a tablet. You could have Jeremy Corbyn in bed saying, I lost two whole elections and it made them love me even more. <laughs> and uh, four John McDonald sizzles in backless mankini. <laughs> no, uh, I mean, by that logic, while well, people read newspapers, we should have our own newspapers. Why not stop there? People get most of the telly news from the news at 10. We should have an alternative news at 10. I'd anchor it with, uh, I don't know, left-wing Susanna Reid. Uh, and, and people, what, what, what do people like? Police dramas. We should, we should do a Labour version of Line of Duty. <laughs> with me, possibly against Susanna Reid. Who knows? Um, he also uh, suggested something that Labour could do in their own party called Justice Twinning. Uh, sounds like a law lord. Um, but uh, Justice Twinning is not a member of the High Court. He, uh, Justice Twinning is where local Labour parties would twin in the way that towns do uh, with areas that are uh, in, in areas of conflict. So he said they could twin, local Labour parties could twin with the Palestinian occupied territories or with Colombia where you get shot for being a trade unionist. Uh, so I do go over there, Richard, and, and, and do remind them that you're a trade unionist. But he, uh, he basically. It seems to have conflated the idea of a Labour Party as a party trying to win government and stuff he would just like to do on a gap year. <laughs> now, I think, should we go, I think, should we go into remote tribes and volunteering? I think that's what we should be doing. But I, 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 I went to the Amazon and I, uh, uh, the, not the one that doesn't pay its taxes, by the way. Uh, I went, I went to, that's where I got these beads. That's what we should be doing. <laughs> that's what we should be doing on that. He also wants, by the way, and I love this one, he should, he wants Labour Party members to have a vote uh, anytime the country wants to go to war, which, um, apart from it's sort of timely, uh, obviously, if, if this policy had existed throughout history, would have ruined some of the best war films we've ever seen. Do not throw spears at me before you balloted your members and affiliates. <laughs> I love the smell of an all-member conference in the morning. I am Richard Decimus Bergen. Loyal servant to the one true emperor, Jeremiah Corbyn. Deputy to a murdered partner, husband to a bored wife. And I will have my vengeance at this special conference or the next. Um, <laughs> there was a, well, one story I almost forgot was uh, Donald Trump obviously been in India this week and the way that he pronounced certain cricketers' names. They clearly had written phonetically on an article. <laughs> Any great Indian cricketers of Sarchin Dindalkir. <laughs> Great cricketer, by the way, very good. <laughs> looking forward to interviewing in the second half. Right, Beaker, Lun, Bully. <laughs> very, very talented, very talented uh, politician from 
Liverpool, one of our great Scottish cities that I know people love <laughs> so much. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you are already a wonderful audience. I will see you in 20 minutes. I've been Matt Ford. Thank you very much. See you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Welcome back to the second half, ladies and gentlemen. We have a very special guest tonight. Now, um, who I've wanted to interview for a very long time. Um, I always mean it, but it's a shame that it's seen as a sarcastic catchphrase <laughs> and not, the, uh, not always the, the uh, honest, earnest uh, phrase that it is. Um, this is a real thrill because, I think I'm right in saying this, apart from nights when we had like, the independent group here, uh, that went well, when uh, um, we've had all the people together, this is the first, in, in a way it's like completing a, a Panini sticker album because this is the last Labour leadership candidate that I've interviewed really in the last few months. So Emily Thornbury's been here, Keir Starmer, obviously last month we had Lisa Nandy, and tonight we have Rebecca Longbain, which I'm absolutely delighted about. Rebecca has only been an MP I think for less than five years, the MP for Salford and Eccles uh, since the 2015 general election, and already in that time has become one of the most prominent uh, members of the Labour Party uh, front bench, and is now, as we know, standing for the leadership uh, against Keir Starmer and Lisa Nandy. She has, uh, I think even in that short time, grown into a new composure, and is one of the most impressive people on the left of the Labour Party. So ladies and gentlemen, give a huge welcome to Rebecca Long-Bailey. <laughs> Rebecca, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for coming. Um, it's a pleasure. Uh, so, um, one of the things, uh, one of the answers you gave to, uh, I always hate to refer back to interviews that other people have done, but one of the, uh, I saw an interview <laughs> with you recently uh, uh, on telly where, um, and I think, I, I don't like to start on such a political point, but you said, um, woe betide anyone who gets in between you and your Netflix and a Chinese. Yeah. Um, so, um, at the moment, you know, what sort of stuff are you watching on Netflix? Right, so I've just finished watching a box set called Queen of the South. This is a bit random, this. It's about a female Mexican drug lord. Well, it's good. Wow. <laughs> and, and, and what inspiration have you taken from that stuff? <laughs> uh, she's a fighter. Okay. And um, if you're ordering a Chinese, what, what sort of dishes are you going for? Sweet and sour chicken balls, fried yes! rice. Yes! <laughs> oh my chips. god! I've not finished yet. Oh no, sorry. <laughs> Sweet and sour chicken balls, fried rice, chips, a pot of curry sauce, and a side of broccoli for your five a day. Oh my God. Yeah. The sweet and sour chicken balls was going to be my supplementary question. Because, <laughs> and always balls, not what is it they call it, Hong Kong style or whatever, where it's already in the sauce. No, no. Oh. You've got to have them on the side and then just. I have them yeah. on the side because I, I don't really like to share. I don't know what you're like. I with. don't share either. No. Um, There's no socialism when it comes to food. <laughs> <laughs> I have, um, if you're interested, chicken chow mein. Um, <laughs> with, but with the chicken balls on the side as a sort of just, just as like a little dipper. And then you can pour the sweet and sour sauce over a portion of the chow mein just to sort of That sounds up nice. Bit. Once yeah. I got noodles as well as all of those components and it was like, I mean, that's pushing it too far, but it was nice. And is it, it is ch so Chinese is your number one takeaway? Yeah, do you ever Do you ever have anything else? Do you have pizza? pizza. Yeah, because my little boy likes pizza. And what's, what's his favourite pizza? Domino's. I mean, you're hitting all the top oh, answers yeah. so far. <laughs> <laughs> and, what, and what we're talking, we're talking half and half stuff, crust, like, how sort of... Uh, chicken and sweet corn. Lovely. Yeah. Yeah, really good. <laughs> this is what politics should be I like. Know. Our favourite food. <laughs> um, so Netflix, when you said Queen of the South, I thought it was going to be a documentary about an obscure Scottish football team. <laughs> no. So, um, <laughs> You're a Manchester United fan, I right? am, yeah. Hooray! Yay! 
Swansea say no, dear. I'm not sure because they don't like United or whether just at the plight of the club. Um, a Liverpool fan. I mean, this is the thing, is that people are going to start turning on you soon, so <laughs> you just be careful. Um, are there any lessons you can take from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as leader of a sort of formerly successful red team? <laughs> <laughs> Don't move away from your values and your beliefs, that's what I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> Always believe you're going to win. So this, this contest, I mean, firstly, let's just deal with, with Labour at the general election. Did you see that coming, the result? No. I mean, we could feel that something was happening, because I'm, I'm in a Leave constituency in Salford, and I knew on the doorstep that people were really angry about Brexit, predominantly, because they thought that we were trying to overturn the result of the referendum. But a lot of our long-term Labour voters were either saying that they're not going to come out and vote at all, or they're going to hold their nose and vote Labour. So I knew it was going to be, yeah. you know, reduced majorities, but I wasn't prepared for that result. It was literally like somebody pulled the floor from under me when I saw that exit poll. I, mean, I think this is something people don't realise, is whatever the harsh contentions of politics inside and outside of political parties, losing general elections, losing any election, even a council by-election, is so emotionally distressing. Mm. I mean, you've obviously had to then go straight into a leadership contest. I mean, do you, it, it, and I mean this in all seriousness, do you feel like you've kind of processed the result and, and got over it yet? I think, because we were, we were chatting for a few minutes ago, and I think myself and all of our Labour members, we've been going through a grieving process, and yeah. we've been doing it through the leadership election, so there's not been as much excitement as there usually would be in a leadership contest, because we're processing why we lost, and we're all, as candidates, trying to explain how we understand why we lost and why we've got to change, and it's not because we wanted to give people a better life. And that's been difficult, and hopefully now we're coming through that grief process. We'll get to a more exciting stage of the, the contest and start talking about the big ideas again. So the, the five stages of grief are denial, <laughs> um, <laughs> anger, bargaining. What's the next one? Uh, oh, crikey. Something in an acceptance. Uh, are you at acceptance yet, do you think? Or? I think I've been through them all about five <laughs> or six times. <laughs> and do you get a sense of the party membership that they have a settled view of why Labour lost? No, I think there's different opinions and it depends on where you are. So obviously if you were in a Leave constituency, a lot of members will say it's definitely Brexit because that was constantly coming up on the doors. If you were in a very heavily Remain constituency, it'd probably be very different and it might have been the policies, it might have been directed against the leader or individuals, it could have been a lack of trust on anti-Semitism within the party and things like that. But overall, large, I think there's a common consensus that Brexit was a key factor, but there were so many other things where we broke trust with our voters. Uh, Unity is another one as well, because we've been tearing strips off each other for four years. I mean, on the leadership, on Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, obviously you were a big supporter of his. In terms of what he was like behind the scenes, because sometimes, and this happens with politicians sometimes, the way they are in public isn't always the way they are in private. I mean, was he different in private to the way that perhaps he was perceived in that election? Definitely, yeah. I mean, he's just a really kind, gentle man, really. And it was sad because you'd get on the doorstep people feeding back a lot of what they read, you know, the smears and the misrepresentations. And he'd spend 10 minutes, you know, saying he's not like that, you know, he's like this. But the damage had already been done then. If you could bring him round and get him to have a chat with, you know, 80,000 people in Salford, you wouldn't have any problems. I mean, it, obviously, I mean, not just with politicians, with people, they're not just one thing, you know. Mm. He, 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 there's 
I'm sure, truth to the kindness and to the niceness and everything, but some of those negative perceptions about him, I mean, do you think they're all based on sort of smears that are based on fantasy, or do you think some of the criticisms actually do resonate and, and you think there is a grain of truth to some of them? Well, there's two types of, of, of smears, if you like. There's the ones that are completely untrue, and then there's ones where they draw on one of your not failings, but something that you've not done as well as you should have done. So if you've not phrased the answer to a question properly, and sometimes that's happened because we're all like that, you know, we're fallible as human yeah. beings. Sometimes we don't give the right answers and we wish afterwards and we think, oh God, I wish I'd put it like that instead of like that. <laughs> and sometimes with all of us, I think we've said things that haven't, you know, given the right impression. And that did happen a few times as well. But do you ever think, particularly I think for, for a lot of people, it was his things he'd said and done in the past. Did you ever think, as someone who was sort of relatively new to Parliament, oh, God, you know, what's going to come out about him next? Well, you think that about everyone. You don't know anyone 100%, <laughs> do you? And it's politics as well. Trust no one. <laughs> but, but do, you think, do you think, I suppose, in a way, would you learn from the Corbyn experience, which is a concern that a lot of people had about him was that he'd associated himself with people that perhaps more mainstream Labour politicians would have had a bit of distance with. And is that something you think, well, actually, I'm not going to go on those marches or be seen on those sorts of panels? Well, I think Jeremy had, a, you know, a very long history in Parliament before he decided to run for Labour leader. And he, you know, championed many campaigns and he never thought he was going to be the Labour leader, whereas I'm a completely different kettle of fish because I've been there for five years. I came into politics as an activist quite late in life, so I don't have that history of you know, accidentally meeting with certain individuals and that being an issue in the future. Or deliberately meeting. Or deliberately meeting them, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you say you've come late in life. I mean, you're still, for most politicians, certainly for leadership candidates and aspiring prime ministers, you are young. I'm and, 40. And, but that's young, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm 37. I consider myself young. Yeah, you, know you don't look 37. I, I look older. <laughs> I'm a fat man with a minuscule penis. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, you must get, I mean, just because everyone does. You must get. Do you read any of the abuse online and stuff like that on social media? I try not to. I mean, obviously, when you're a woman, you get scrutinised a lot more. Yeah. And I suppose one of the comedy elements of, of this, there was one time when I went on television and I've got quite expressive eyebrows when I talk like yeah. that. And some guy had taken a picture of me on Question Time or whatever programme I was on, and he did a picture of my eyes and my eyebrows and kind of superimposed a ruler onto it. It's like, how far away are Rebecca Long-Bailey's eyebrows from her eyes? And now, as a result, my eyebrows have their own Twitter account. And it posts regularly. And um, do you agree with any of the stuff that this account posts? No, because I'm gorgeous and I don't have a problem with my eyebrows. <laughs> I mean, does it make you... I mean, I think it would be difficult enough to be a politician in the modern era particularly a woman, do, do, do you ever think, does it ever make you think, um, you know, things that online bullies say or anything like that, has it ever changed any of your behaviour? Have you ever thought, well, maybe I shouldn't raise my eyebrows as often or...? 
no, have my hair a particular no, way. No, the only the only person that I get bothered about in terms of the criticism is my mum when she rings me up and she's like, Jesus, Rebecca, you looked a state there last night. Because <laughs> <laughs> she's the only one who'll honestly tell me that I've been uh, looking oh, like I've been man. dragged backwards through a hedge. Um, she's back in Kia for leader, of course, but is she, uh, <laughs> <laughs> is she is she a member and is she? She is, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and I mean, presumably she praises you as well. A lot, I think, at the okay. minute, yeah. <laughs> Just and, putting extra ones in. Because I saw a great clip of Angela Rayner and her mum yesterday on, on, I think it was from ITN News, where her mum was absolutely hilarious. Um, and, and you and Angela, of course, are flatmates. Yeah. Flatmates in London. Yeah. And you're standing for the leadership, obviously Angela's standing for the deputy. Did you have a conversation about who would stand for what? We did. Well, we had a, a comedy conversation months and months and months ago. We'd actually gone away on a camping trip over the summer. And, uh, Just we the two of you? We were sat on our kids, and we were sat there drinking gin See, in the field. in Manchester, that can mean your relatives. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or your brother. Does, you mean your children? Our children, yeah. yeah. And we were sat drinking gin in a field, and, uh, and Angela said, oh, you know, we're going to have to like have a chat about what we do if everything goes horribly wrong. So we were having a few drinks, and then we came to the conclusion that, you know, if it all goes horribly wrong, there's only two of us that can sort this out, Ange. It's me and you. We're going to have to do it together. <laughs> anyway, roll forward in time to after the general election defeat and uh, we rang each other up um, in December and was like, we better have a chat. And sat down and you know said, you know, if we're going to re rebuild the party and unify, we're going to have to try and do this as a team. And that's why we decided to do it. So this was, so the, oh, I mean, the famous Blair Brown deal was in Granita <laughs> and Islington. The, the Long Bailey Rainer Pact was uh, in a, around a drunk around a campfire. <laughs> Whereabouts was this campsite? In the Lake District, yeah. Oh, which bit? Uh, Great Langdale <laughs> it was, hey. Uh, what, uh, I mean, we all like the Lake District. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you really like it. Is that where you're from? Never been, but that is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's never been, but that is interesting. <laughs> Was it near Bowness or Windermere? Near Windermere. It's a place called Great Langdale. And is it... So paint us a picture. Is it one of those, like, um, like mobile home... Uh... No, it's like a campsite for, like, tents. Okay. They had, like, little kind of... What are they called? Camping pods that you could stay in. Yeah, yeah. But we had tents, proper tents, like proper campers. So, but there must have been other people there going... Fucking hell, I reckon that's Rebecca Long Bailey and Angela Rain a shit fit. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about being the next Labour leader, and Rebecca Long Bailey's just slapped her for having one of her chicken balls. What the fuck? <laughs> so there was no one else around, it was just the two of you? Yeah. And what were you drinking? Gin, I think. I seem to remember. And an <laughs> vodka, and I had gin, because she doesn't like gin. And um, so, as, a, as flatmates, then, what's the dynamic in the house? Because. Um, I've lived with friends before, and inevitably, no matter how diligent and caring you think you are as a flatmate, some person at some point always thinks that one person's doing more of the house stuff than the other person. Like, do you think you split things fairly equally, or, or does Angela do more, or do you do more? Well, she cleaned the entire flat the other night, and I don't remember the last time that I did it, but we don't make that much of a mess, because we're not there that much, and we don't really tend to cook. We get Chinese takeaways to treat ourselves <laughs> every now and again, or have pot noodles. But yeah, but I'm a model flatmate. So she never says, Rebecca, where are the fucking marigolds? You said you had them, and I can't fucking find them. <laughs> no. Or paid the council tax, or no. not open mail. 
No, no, she does kick off sometimes because I don't pick up the mail from the bottom of the stairs because we live in a flat, you see, and the mail's at the bottom of the stairs and I'll walk past it. It's a bit like, you know, when you get an empty bottle and you put it back in the fridge. I'm notorious for doing that as well. That is bad. That is really bad <laughs> behaviour. Just empty bottles of gin stacking up in that fridge. <laughs> so, <laughs> so do you ever nick her food? Yeah, we had a pot noodle. The last pot noodle in the house, because we literally had no food because we're doing this campaign. So not, neither of us had been to a shop and I got in and I thought, there's no food, there's not even any beans. There's like a chicken and mushroom pot noodle. So I sent her a message and went, can I have that last pot noodle? I know it's yours. And she's like, what's mine is yours, it's fine. Oh, so yeah, and she stopped up last week because she sent me a message and she said, Becky, I've got more pot noodles, don't worry. And, and toilet roll. And <laughs> <laughs> to deal with the pot noodles. Yeah. But um, do, does she only get chicken and mushroom or does she get, uh, 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 you know, we're talking Bombay bad boy? No, nothing too crazy. We've had chicken and mushroom and the beef and tomato. Oh, it's such, <laughs> such an amazing, I mean, it's just such a different route to power than Boris Johnson. <laughs> It's like the it's like it's like you it's it's I mean it sounds like a sitcom. <laughs> Two Labour politicians living in a flat arguing over the last pot noodle <laughs> in 2020. I mean so um I mean it must be quite cool actually because obviously you live with your family back home and then a few days a week you basically just get to live with your mate. Yeah, it's nice. She's like family. So it is nice. And because we've got kids and, you know, we leave them at home in our constituencies, it's nice to be with someone who understands what you're going through. And uh, are you sort of helping each other out with each other's leadership bits and deputy leadership bits? Yeah, we're, well, we're fully supporting each other with whatever we do. And whoever wins, you know, if we don't win, if we do win, we're going to be there behind them 101%. And you kind of helping each other. With, I mean, it must be so emotionally draining standing for the leadership after a defeat like that, at a time of year like this where everyone's flooded or got coronavirus, it must be, or both, I'm sure there's a Venn diagram of some poor sod. That... <laughs> and it must be so... Is she the person that you would text first and go, oh, I had an awful husband tonight in such and such, or I didn't like that question from that sort of person? We do go in and rant at each other. Usually I burst into a bedroom and go, I've had enough of this, and, and she'll do the same thing if she gets in late. <laughs> it must be cool to be living with someone who's basically going through almost the identical process at yeah. the same time. I, I remember when I used to work for the Labour Party and we would run parliamentary selections around the country, and there was like a, a sort of circuit of people who just weren't getting selected anywhere, and it was like being backstage at a gig, because they'd go... All right, Mike. Yeah, saw you at Corby the other day. Yeah, you didn't get that either then, yeah. No, I opened with the Foundation Hospital stuff. And they'd be like, never open with that Corby. <laughs> no, start with Iraq and then go into tuition fees. It was like, I'll, I'll bear that in mind, mate. They were talking about it like it was a set list. Like, right, start with Iraq, tuition fees, and then something about climate change. They're like, yeah, that's the way to do it. I mean, do you sort of have that sort of plan in mind? Do you think, well, this is my strong suit, so I'll sort of open with that and then go on to other stuff? I generally just say how I feel. I think you just need to let members know where you stand and what you believe in. So that's what I try and do. So I try and tell people about why I'm in politics and where I came from and what brought me there. And then I tell people what my vision is and how we're going to win. The Green New Deal is something you basically, it seems that you wrote it, you certainly led it, not read it all, wrote it all by yourself. I'm, I'm sure you had a lot of help, but that is sort of your big centrepiece really yeah. for your campaign. What is the Green New Deal? So the Green New Deal or the Green Industrial Revolution, whichever you want to call it, it's a set of policies that decarbonises our economy. 
and it involves a number of things all the way through from insulating every single home in the UK at no cost to the homeowner themselves. They actually pay for it out of the reduced bills that they get as a result from that. It relates to supporting new industries like new wind farm factories, solar farm factories, new heating type of appliances, um, an automotive strategy so that we can all afford electric vehicles in the next 10, 20 years and we've got factories that are able to produce them and a whole range of other things. So it wasn't just about tackling climate change, it was about re-industrialising the UK and those seats that we lost in the Red Wall, they're largely in areas that were de-industrialised 40 years ago and they've never really recovered since. So it was offering hope to them as well as offering hope to everybody else that we're actually going to be able to have a planet to live on. So the Green New Deal, is, I mean the Green Industrial Revolution, obviously the Industrial Revolution is an overwhelmingly positive thing, but kids losing their arms in looms and shit. You don't want that sort of... <laughs> you don't want to suggest that people are going to, you know, infant labour losing arms at a wind farm or something. Like... We're having none of that. OK, cool. So it would be like the Industrial Revolution, but only the positive It'd be bits. a nice Industrial Revolution, <laughs> because we'll be in charge of it this time, so we'll make sure that everyone has decent terms and conditions, that we support the UK-based businesses in the supply chains. Everyone's going to be positive. happy as a result. I mean, do you, it must be immensely frustrating for you to have done so much work on a big idea yeah. that is very timely, climate yeah. change is the biggest threat, related to the security of the planet, and not be in government to be able to enact it. Yeah, I mean, it's very upsetting because I know that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change have said that the majority of the action needed to decarbonise our economy by 2050 actually needs to be taken by 2030. That's why there's such a big deal about this 2030 target. And with the government that we've got in power at the moment, Boris Johnson's a climate denier. I mean, he suddenly had some kind of Damascene conversion in the last few weeks and he thinks that it's real again. But before that, he thought it was a primitive fear without foundation, he said. So he's not going to take the action that we need to. And I'm very worried that if we don't, as an opposition, pressure the government by building a huge movement that involves trade unions, green groups, business and industry to spur the government of the current day to take the action that's required. When we get into power in 2024, the action that we're going to have to take is going to have to be more, far more dramatic. So whereas now, it's a huge economic opportunity, it's going to create jobs, it's going to make people's lives better. In 2024, we're going to have to move far quicker and there'll be less of a just transition available to those industries that might be affected. Uh, I read a quote of yours from election night, and I might be getting, I might, I'm sure I'm paraphrasing it and, and this, but I remember you saying that when that, might be when the exit poll came in or, or when it was clear that the, the kind of the game was up, that for a moment you thought, you were sort of heartbroken that the country had rejected socialism mm. and you, you, you were kind of rethinking everything and then you say so you put that thought out of your mind. I mean... Has there been any time since where you've kind of reflected on that and thought maybe Labour from the position that it's currently in just can never win? Well, the thing, you're quite right. On election night, I knew the next day the arguments would begin. No one believes in socialism. Nobody likes the policies. And I knew that that wasn't true. I knew we'd made a mess of selling the policies. I knew we didn't have a message that spoke to our <laughs> communities, an aspirational message that divided people sometimes between those who were doing well and those who weren't doing well, instead of making everybody realise that no matter what your income group was, these industrial strategies and these policies were about lifting everybody up. 
And I knew that I had to start making a different kind of argument to convince people that the policies were the right direction to take. So I don't ever question what I believe in because the policies that we've got, they're not even radical. You know, we talk about them being radical and they are radical compared to where we are now. But other countries across Europe are already doing many of the things that we'd set out. So I think we need to make a sensible case for what we're trying to sell to our electorate and make people realise that it's about aspiration. But it's not, isn't there sort of like a route below that where it's not even that, you know, when polled people might say, yes, I'd like to see the rail nationalised. Taken as a whole with rail, mail, water, electric, broadband, people then maybe thought there's really no way you can... Re resell that without people the fundamentals of that making people think I, I just can't believe it isn't it also just that the public get a sense about parties sometimes mm. and they think most people are broadly around the centre ground and this party feels too left wing for me and even if you said it's aspirational and, and maybe change the message there's something about maybe Labour's direction under Corbyn and, and if you want to continue that then it would be the problem that you would face as well, that people would just say, I just don't feel that Rebecca Long-Bailey is around that centre ground where most people are. Well, then I always get annoyed about what people define as the centre ground and the left. You know, when we were talking about bringing water companies into public ownership, there were two reasons, and it wasn't because it was some crazy radical left-wing pursuit that was ideologically driven because we wanted to nationalise everything. It was because water companies had been repeatedly ripping off consumers and they'd been criticised for prioritising dividend extraction over investment in infrastructure. So to make sure that we had a water system that was fit for purpose, we knew that it needed to be in public hands. It was also absurd that other countries around the world that weren't led by left-wing governments had economic interests in those water companies and energy companies and rail companies. So bringing them into public ownership was never really a left agenda, if you like. It was necessary for economic development and for the provision of services. And again, with other policies, making sure that everyone gets a decent wage. It's not left wing. That's just about what the role of government should be, about making sure that everyone has the best possible life that they can. But what about the, the culture and the tone of the party? I remember watching the Labour Party conference last summer and it looked like literally everyone was waving a Palestinian flag. And I understand why Labour people care about Palestinian rights. But I, I think it's odd enough when the Tories wave the Union Jack that it would be odd enough to wave en masse your own flag, to wave en masse another country's flag to a lot of people just looks a bit weird. Perhaps, yeah. I mean, but it's, it's would right. Would you stop that sort of... If you were leader, would you say, we're not having that again? <laughs> not banning flags, no. But, um, but I think it's right for us to, to make sure that when we're presenting ourselves to the country, we're not focusing on niche and specific issues. We're looking at a broader vision. And that's what went wrong in this general election campaign sometimes, is that we didn't tell people what our broad message was. People should be able to say, yeah, the Labour Party stands for this. They stand for aspiration. But if you ask somebody what they thought the Labour Party believed in in this general election, they wouldn't be able to tell you. And then plopping policies in, you know, two or three times a day just added to that confusion. Yeah, or, or somebody could tell you, but they, they, I imagine they'd be fairly blunt answers. <laughs> Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You know, in, Deborah Matheson of Britain thinks it, and I'm sure we've read some of her work, um, the social undercurrents and pre-Brexit, just the fact that large parts of the country, formerly Labour voting areas, are quite socially conservative. Mm. And a lot of the things that people perceive the Labour Party to be valuing aren't things that they agree mm. with. And it's not just about quinoa or trans rights or things like that. It's things about patriotism <laughs> mm. and whether people feel like the Labour Party actually likes the country it's seeking to govern. Yeah. Um, now, Lisa Nandy's been quite outspoken about the monarchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, is the monarchy something that you would keep? I'm not. I don't have any problems with the monarchy, really. I think we've got more important <laughs> things to be concentrating on than abolishing the monarchy. But there is a perception that perhaps Labour under Corbyn, maybe even under Ed Miliband as well, that some of these things pre-Corbyn, of course, maybe wasn't that keen on our armed forces, didn't really like the United Kingdom, was kind of ashamed of our history in its entirety, blames us for a lot of the problems in the world. I think, is that your worldview? I think you're right in terms of the message that many of our voters got. And this is what we have to change, because the primary objective of any prime minister is to make sure that it keeps its citizens safe. And we should keep saying that again and again and again. Now, that doesn't undermine us having an ethical foreign policy that's based on international law and human rights and social justice, because we should have that as well. But we should always make sure that that first statement that we make is that we will keep you safe and we will do whatever it takes to do that. And that's what our communities need us to say. So when Jeremy Corbyn, after the Salisbury poisonings, got up and asked the Prime Minister if he'd sent a sample of Novichok to the Kremlin... I mean, when you hear that, what do you think? Well, again, I think the message that needed to be sent to our communities was about their safety is of paramount importance. And, it, and you know, let's just say, I probably would have handled it a little differently myself. <laughs> well, yes, with the safety goggles and, a, and um, <laughs> very thick gloves. Um, but, I mean, do you, obviously, Jeremy comes from a different generation in the Labour Party to you. I mean, do you go in... There sort of seems to be a fair bit of Russia stuff, like he'd walk around in the Lenin hat, whatever people said about Newsnight. He kind of liked to be associated in that way that George Galloway and Ken Livingston kind of did with a kind of Kremlinology of, of sorts. I mean, is, is Russia part of your political mindset? Is what, Jeremy had a Lenin hat? Yeah, what was that hat? I don't think with? that's a Lenin hat. He's got a special name for it, but it's not a Lenin hat. What's the special name for it? I don't it? know. It's like, <laughs> it's a something cat. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Not like a peak cap. It's got like a weird name. But it's that kind of Russian-looking kind of thing, isn't yeah. it? It's an activist. I don't hat. think he wears it because he thinks it's a Russian hat. I think he just thinks it looks trendy. <laughs> Do you think it looks trendy? No. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a kind of there's a kind of love for Russia and Russian culture and language, isn't there? And certainly sort of Soviet Union. Yeah. I don't think. I mean, I've never ever had a conversation with Jeremy about Russia ever. 
So I don't think he's obsessed with it. Because he's a spy. But maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but it's certainly a message that's been uh, portrayed through certain elements of the media. So you're, you're uh, socialism then. Mm -hmm. what, what are the primary influences, uh, influences on it? And, and, and how would you sort of describe it? How would it about aspirational socialism is the phrase that I'd use because, and that's what socialism is, it's about realising your potential and your aspirations. And I remember growing up I learnt my politics from my mum and dad. I used to listen to my mum and dad chatting when my dad got home from his shift at work and he was a trade union rep and I'd be sat at the top of the stairs eavesdropping and listening. And this was the 80s and it was at a time of great like deindustrialisation under Thatcher. And they'd always be talking about redundancies at work or pay disputes or worry about my dad losing his job and not being able to pay the mortgage on the house. And then later on, I developed more of a worldview and, and an understanding of the economy when I got my first job in a pawn shop, P-A-W-N shop, <laughs> if you get any ideas. Heck of a chat we're yeah. about to have. <laughs> I did say that to a, a room and there was a few old ladies there and I was like, and I was in the pawn shop and they were like, Bertha, I'm not sure we want to come in here again. <laughs> but, but I saw people coming in and they were pawning their family heirlooms, you know, a little ring to get a tenner to feed the kids or to pay for the kids' school trip. And I got quite angry. So I thought, well, one of the richest economies in the world and people are living hand to mouth as if they were in the Victorian times. And then... I did what everybody tries to do. When mum and dad wanted me to work hard, they didn't want me to struggle like they did. They'd left school without any qualifications and were always insecure. So they did what a lot of pushy parents did and they said, go off, go to university, get you know a profession, give yourself choices. So I did and I worked hard for many years and I realised when I'd done well, that many of the people that I'd grown up with hadn't done as well. And it wasn't because I was more clever than they were, it's because I was lucky and I'd been in the right place at the right time. And I'd had a boss, you know, all those years ago that saw something in me and gave me that lucky break and the opportunity that I needed. And that's what made me realise is that, you know, the Labour Party has to be about lifting people up, but not just about making sure it's, you know, we have social mobility so people can go to university and do well and escape poverty. It's about making sure that poverty doesn't exist. Whatever your job, you have a decent wage you're able to buy a house if you want to and have a car and go on holiday and that's always what we've believed in we've just got to remind our communities that that is what we're trying to do so what you get that sense of social injustice from your from your own situation growing up in the period in the household that you did at what point did you become party politicized then was it was it someone in town was it someone at university was it watching neil kinnock no what happened was my mum retired and she was sending my dad mad around the house, right? <laughs> and she's not into arts and crafts or knitting or anything like that. So, but she's into politics. All she does is sit watching newses and ranting and question time and things like that. She's very uh, clever, my mum. And I said to mum, I said, right, I said, let's join the Labour Party and I'll go to some meetings with you. And when you've made some little Labour friends, I'll leave you to it. And then I'll go about the rest of my life. So I went to the first meeting, and this was... We should have Labour care homes. That's what we should be offering. <laughs> it's a great idea, Becky. And I will deliver it, by the way. <laughs> so you, you basically joined the Labour Party to get your mum occupied. Yeah, but I was, I was going to leave it at that once you made friends. And I went to that first meeting. 
And we sat down and, you know, they did what you usually do in Labour Party meetings and they went through the minutes of the last meeting and I was like, Jesus, this is awful. And, and then they had a discussion. And I remember this guy in the meeting piping up and saying, oh, we've just lost this election. We really need to start thinking differently. We should start means testing hospital meals. If you can afford to pay, you should pay for your hospital meals. And loads of them in the meeting went, yeah, that's right. That's what we need to do. And I remember being enraged and I was driving my mum home that night and I was like, mum, I know I said I'd leave you to it, but Jesus, if I don't stay and try and do something about this, then we're doomed forever. <laughs> so what year was that? That was 2010. So from, from going to a meeting in 2010 to becoming an MP in 2015 is, a, is an incredible... I mean, even in the rise that you've had since, that in itself is just so fast. I know. I, I mean, know. at that point... Would you have ever imagined you'd be a member of Parliament? No, not at all. And um, I got involved in, you know, campaigning activities. I did a lot of campaigning for the NHS because in 2010, the Tories had started a large-scale privatisation plan under Andrew Lansing, and I got quite angry about it. So I did a lot of work on that. And then a few years down the line, I remember one of our local Labour Party friends said, oh, you know, why don't you think of becoming an MP? And I just started laughing because I thought, there's no way on God's earth I'll be able to become an MP. Because you always think that, you know, parties have machines. It'll have been kind of promised to somebody else. You'll know, if you don't know the right people, you'll never be in with a shout. And, uh, and that is true in places. It is. I mean, it's getting better now. And we've got a long way to go to make sure that we're as open and as democratic as we should be. But I had that perception and, and uh, managed to get through somehow. So. I for, for anyone to get even selected for parliamentary seat, let alone elected, then being it, 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 those are such huge hurdles uh, mm -hmm. for people. So it's amazing that you're able to overcome them so quickly. Um, so w when you're first in those Labour Party meetings, then I mean, at that point, were you like, I know what communism is and socialism, and I like it, or are you like, would you've described yourself as a Millibandite or a Brownite? I mean, at that point, were you thinking about where you were on the spectrum of the left? No, and I don't really place myself on any spectrum of the left. I know what I believe in, and if you want to call it socialism or whatever else you want to call it, I just want to create an economy that gives everybody the quality of life that they deserve. But in terms of the wings of the Labour Party, inevitably, and it's not, it's not, it's not really a bad thing. People within any movement will have different opinions and they'll coalesce around people that agree with them. Do you think, you know, from that meeting in 2010... So you join the Labour Party just after they've lost, after Gordon Brown loses. But to a current, you know, losers, but not by a huge amount. And then Ed Miliband losing in 2015, Jeremy Corbyn losing in 2017-2019. And obviously Tony Blair having won in 97, 2001, 2005. Do, do you... <laughs> and, 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 just, you know, but, but, and Labour having not won for 18... Is there any... <laughs> is there, I'm not even trying to be funny, I'm being serious. Well, if we want to win, maybe we should listen to Tony Blair a bit. I think we should listen to everyone, all our previous leaders in the party, and you learn from their mistakes and you learn from the positive things that they've done. Well, going back to what any one leader has done isn't the way to win the next general election. We've got to be rooted in our values. We've got to be very clear that the whole point of the Labour Party is the betterment of all of our communities. And we've got to convey that, and we've got to have policies and big visions to, 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 live, to deliver that in power. But learning from winners is something that should be important in any industry or any mm. sort of pursuit. I mean, if... I don't, I don't know if Tony Blair has offered you any advice during this 
leadership um, campaign. Probably enough, no. But if you, uh, <laughs> if you were to become leader and you're there in the leader of the opposition's office in Norman Shaw South and someone says, uh, Rebecca, it's, it's Tony Blair on the phone. What do you say? Hi, Tony. How are this you? Is, I'm good, thanks, uh, Rebecca. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I just wanted to get in touch to firstly congratulate you on a, a fantastic <laughs> victory. But look, I want Libra to win. I know you do too. And I just wondered if, look, if you wanted to go camping at the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps, you know, we could, we could chat about stuff. I mean, let's say he said, look, I want to do an event where me and you try and unite the Labour Party in a... Sort of conference or whatever you call it. Uh, <laughs> would you would you share a platform with him if you said, look, let's try and unite the Labour Party. You're the new leader. I'm sort of the only living person who's won. Um, let's let's do something together. Would you would you think okay, fine, or would you think actually I don't want to be I don't want to be pictured? No, I would because we're a broad church, and the good thing about us as a party, if people could get their head around this, we'd crack it is that we've always had groups in the party who've believed in different things and pushed different policy positions. But we do it in private, we don't do it on the media, we don't do it in public. And when, when we've agreed the position and we've had those arguments, we unite and we recognise who the real enemy is, the Conservative Party. So yeah, I would. I might not agree with everything that Tony Blair says, and they'd say well, that I wouldn't agree with everything that Gordon Brown has said. But we share ideas and you pick the best things that they've done and you work on it. I mean, there is a, a vilification of him, really, on, on, in large elements of the Labour Party. I mean, what's, what's your view of, of Blair in the Blair years? Well, they won general elections, and you've got to look at the positives of every Labour victory. So in 1945, we won with a positive vision because we were rebuilding Britain after the war and we created the NHS. And then Harold Wilson won with a big vision of the white heat of technology and the jobs of the future. And in 1997, Tony Blair had a vision. It was about education and aspiration. And they're all positive visions. And the only time we ever win was with that positivity and with the big ideas. So we've got to do that again in 2024. But it was also patriotic. It was tough on crime. It was strong on defence. I mean, are those... We should be patriotic and we should be strong on defence. We always have been as a Labour Party, but it's about conveying that message to our communities that we are. Uh, I mean, it's not just about Trident, is it? It is things like the Salisbury poisonings and stuff like that. I mean, do you think... Uh, I remember George Galloway was the first guest I ever had here years ago, and I remember him saying, I'm classically right-wing when it comes to crime. Because let me tell you, if anyone... And I, I think I'm paraphrasing. He said, if anyone was terrorising the community I lived in, I would be the one creeping up behind them and slitting their throat. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I think you might even add, in the moonlight. Now, <laughs> I may have added that years later, but I'm sure that's pretty much what you said. I mean, do you think sometimes, or maybe like the, the harder left of the Labour Party, actually, that the, the kind of soft on crime thing actually isn't real and that members and that politicians like yourself actually would, would sort of back a more sort of robust, robust policing well, everybody wants to feel safe. You know, that's, that should be a right of any citizen and it's a government's duty to deliver that safety. But you do that through a range of policies. You do that by properly resourcing your police services and you do that by making sure you have a justice system that's properly resourced and fit for purpose and where there's an opportunity to rehabilitate. Of course, you try and rehabilitate offenders. But at the moment, we've got 
services that are that starved of funding all the way through from the police through to probation through to the justice service itself that there isn't that feeling of safety in our communities and with um foreign policy is the right thing but just just on the uh, i sort of forgot to ask you this earlier just on like the israel palestine thing i mean when you first got into politics was that something that was dominant in labor meetings that you were talking about a lot no not really no have you noticed in the last few years that becoming more of a discussion within the party? No, well, not certainly in my Salford Labour Party meeting. No, not really. Um, we talk about all sorts of issues right across the world. But if we feel that there's you know, particular countries where, where people you know, are facing you know, humanitarian issues, then of course we talk about it. It does seem, and it was the thing with the conference as well, obviously people completely understand why there are people animated about the rights of uh, Palestinians, but why is it only Palestine that people seem to talk about. What is it about that dispute that so animates people on the left, do you think? Well, it's not the only issue that people talk about in the Labour Party. We talk about Yemen, we talk about Kashmir and various other places around the world where people are in Venezuela. Hardship. We don't talk about Venezuela. I don't know why everyone's so obsessed about Venezuela. Well, it's, it's because it's <laughs> fallen into chaos and a, a Labour leadership that was pro the regime was sort of strangely silent when it, when it went to hell. I think that was probably why. But, but why is it... But what, what is it about Israel-Palestine as a, as a dispute that puts it at the top of the list for people, do you think? I'm not sure it's at the top of everybody's list. It's a, it's a one, it, one you know, other political issue across the world. Yeah. I mean, on the Labour left, like it, they weren't waving any other country's flag. Why Palestine? Well, I didn't speak to the individuals that were waving flags. But I think... But what do you think? Well, I don't, I don't know. I haven't spoke to the people that were waving the flags themselves. But, I mean, it's right for us as a party to stand up for, you know, any citizen around the world that might be facing hardship. And that's why we have a foreign policy that's based on international law, human rights, social justice. We've said very clearly that we want a peaceful solution between Israel and Palestine, a secure Israel alongside a viable Palestinian state. We want an end to the, the blockade. Uh, and the illegal settlements and the, the hardship that people face there. Um, but it's right for us in the party to make sure that we don't just focus on that one foreign policy issue. And I think that's sometimes what the issue that causes concern is that we talk a lot about that and we don't talk about other issues across the world. So, so why do you talk more about that than anywhere else? I don't, I mean, there might be particular members that focus specifically on that more than other issues. And that's why as a front bench and uh, as a leader, you'd need to make sure that you would having that breadth of discussion across the membership on all sorts of issues and domestic issues. We don't want to be consumed with foreign policy no. issues all of the time either. Because there was a guy at one of your um, events the other day, I think it was in Ebden Bridge or Martin Royd or something like that. And he asked a question where he says... Uh, Margaret Hodge and, and uh, John Mann and the Israeli lobby. And you respond to that in terms of the policy of Israel, but when you hear people use phrases like the Israeli lobby, do you think, on reflection, you should have challenged him on that and well, asked him, no, yeah. what is I mean, the Israeli it's, lobby? It wasn't, it wasn't the right thing for, for him to say. And he, he cloaked that in a wider contribution because he was talking for quite a long time. And his actual question was, why did I say I was a Zionist? Mm -hmm. So I responded to that question by explaining that the reason that I said that is because I believe in uh, the Jewish people's right to self-determination, a secure Israel and a viable Palestinian state, but it's also right for us to stand up and, uh, and, and talk about 
the issues that Palestinians are facing in Gaza, in the occupied territories, etc., etc. But I should have called him out on the comment because it's not acceptable for any Labour member to say that of an MP. I mean, it's, it, it's language that has become so commonplace in certain parts of the left over the last few years. Do you think it's driven by anti-Semitism? We went from being a, quite a moderately sized party to a huge party. There's two issues to this. Firstly, it's the procedures themselves and their ability to deal with the large numbers of members that we had. And it wasn't just anti-Semitism, it was all forms of discrimination. We were seeing huge backlogs and the, them not being processed, people being suspended for years and their case not being resolved. And that was unacceptable, so we needed to reform that. But there was also an issue about needing to educate our members. There were those people who were found to be anti-Semitic in the party and you'd look at what they'd said and it was a quite a clear case of anti-Semitism. They shouldn't have been a Labour Party member. And then there were other members who, thinking that they were standing up for the human rights of Palestinians, were sharing posts or making comments that were conflating what they believed in, in terms of foreign policy, with anti-Semitic tropes and conspiracy theories. And they needed to be educated so that they could spot those and to not perpetrate these quite insidious comments and beliefs. I mean, some people say Jeremy Corbyn was one of those people who'd made comments about British Zionists not understanding an English sense of humour. Is that, him saying that, is that anti-Semitic? I don't know in what context he said that, to be honest. I watched, went down some YouTube rabbit hole, but uh, it, was, uh, it, was, uh, it, was, um, it was, I think it was at some university thing. But I think he had apologised in the past for using the word Zionist and Jew in, in the sort of wrong, using Zionist in the wrong context or something like that. I mean, at any point during his leadership, did you ever question his values when it came to Jewish people? No, because, I mean, Jeremy's always been an anti-racist campaigner his whole life. Now, that's not to say, like, many members, you know, they might say the wrong thing from time to time, but as long as they are sorry and they are willing to go on a journey to recognise what they've done wrong and not do it again, then I'd never say that you couldn't, you know, apologise. Like, Naz Shah is like a case in point. She recognised what she did wrong. She tried to rebuild trust with the Jewish community over her actions, and now she recognises that what she said was completely inappropriate and it was anti-Semitic. How difficult have you found it effectively, ideologically agreeing with Jeremy Corbyn, but trying to win the leadership in the aftermath of such a heavy defeat and seemingly a rejection of those ideas? How difficult has it been for you to position yourself as simultaneously a candidate of continuity, but also simultaneously a candidate of change? Well, I mean, because people try and call me the, con the Corbyn continuity candidate and I always say there's no such thing as Corbynism. There's just socialism and what we believe in the Labour Party. And we shouldn't scale back our ambition because the Tories want us to do that. They want us to be painted as the establishment. Boris Johnson's carefully crafted himself as this anti-establishment politician that's standing up for the people because we won't listen to them as we didn't listen to them on Brexit. And we can't fall into that trap. But at the same time, without compromising on our beliefs, we've got to be electable. And that's the, the juggling act that many of our members are, are, are struggling with at the moment. It's like, what is electable? And do we need to compromise on those principles? And I'm here to tell them that they don't need to. I will appeal to a wide cross-section of society. We've got to have the right message and the right appeal. Of course we do. But we're not going to win another general election without that big vision. So um, if there isn't such a thing as Corbynism, is there such a thing as Long Baileyism? <laughs> uh, and no. if so, what is it? It's just socialism. But the, I mean, so Tony Blair might describe his 
the legacy of socialism. Uh, 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 they might be two different types. So what form of socialism is Long Baileyism? What would be the, the sort of defining characteristics of it? Everyone be, is happy at the end of it. That's the whole point of socialism. I mean, that's a great well idea. Off. I know. I mean, it could be here all night if we start talking about the nuances of it all and the differences. I mean, I've never sat down and had a conversation with Tony Blair to, to like, bat out our political differences. But, I, I mean, would you, do you look at the Corbyn experience and go, look, this isn't just about communicating these values. Actually, I would be more uh, patriotic. I would be seen in more patriotic circumstances. I... And wouldn't talk about, say, Palestine as often. Would you? Where would you differ from Corbyn in the way that you would be leader of the Labour? I mean, Party? I would, and I, I, I mean, I'm a different person, and I think the language that I'd use to describe different things would be very different. But that's not because we differ politically. It's just because I present myself in a very different way, and uh, and I come from a community that is probably conservative with a small C socially, if you like. So I understand what people need to hear to feel reassured by a Labour Party. And just in terms of patriotism, um, obviously this is the year of Euro 2020. Um, uh, England, apparently the bookies' favourite to win it. I mean, do, do you think that far ahead and think, right, well, if we get to, say, you know, the semi-final, or even this, do you think, right, if I'm leader of the Labour Party, I'm, I'm going to wear an England shirt and I'm going to sort of stand up for the national anthem and shit like that, or do you not think that far ahead or not even in that way? I don't even think that far ahead, but I think any leader of the Labour Party would be standing up for a national anthem. <laughs> really uh, would, you, would you happily sing it? Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> of course I, mean, I would. Because in a, in a, I mean, it's a strange song. <laughs> <laughs> For a number of reasons. Like, I, don't th I think part of the problem is, actually, I think there is a debate to be had about the future of the monarchy. And if it just gets bogged down in, you know, sort of Corbynism, you kind of lose... I think there is a, maybe a, a more sort of mainstream opinion that actually... There is a resistance to the monarchy in some level and that we, we could have a debate like that. I mean, I'm sensing the room going quickly cold. But um, <laughs> I don't know, I've always had a bit of an issue with it. So even as a Blairite, I'm like, I think it's legitimate to have a debate about the future of the I monarchy. I just think we've got more important things to concentrate on. And like even my mum, like on Christmas Day, we were watching the Queen's speech and even my mum was like spreading the love for Liz. She was like, Liz, that woman... After everything she's been through, she's not put a foot wrong. <laughs> and she was talking about unity. I remember that. And my mum was going, unity. <laughs> good woman, Liz. Good woman. <laughs> so Long Baileyism is basically a sort of pro-monarchist communism. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's going to mess with your head. Though, <laughs> um, so, no, you're right. We, I mean, that was, uh, that was sort of... Funny. Let's get on to more serious things. Um, have you ever drank Yorkshire tea? I have. <laughs> and is it the best, in your opinion? It is the best tea, yeah. I mean, and, and this is from someone from Lancashire. Mm. I mean, if, if nothing else, I mean, so in a sense, do you, do you have a sense of solidarity with Rishi Sunak? Not really, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is, I don't know if people... I just find it the best tea. It's the strongest it's tea. It's the strongest tea. You only need to leave the bag in for a couple of seconds and it goes the right colour of tea. Compared to PG tips and mm. Thai food is awful. <laughs> Brook Bond D. Um... <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to think what other home brand really. Don't, uh, is there a better tea brand than York than Yorkshire tea that people would suggest? Yeah. Oh, Ooh, posh tea. There's another Blairite here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Twinings. So, are we talking purely English breakfast versus English breakfast, or are you talking Twinings infusions? <laughs> oh, 
Someone brought a knife to a gunfight. <laughs> Someone brought a tea bag to an infusions fight. Um, or were you just talking standard English breakfast against standard English breakfast? Earl Grey, wasn't Earl Grey? Earl Grey! I mean, wh where do you stand on Earl Grey? I d it's just weird. <laughs> <laughs> what, why, what, why do you like Earl Grey so much? It's a fair answer. It tastes nice. Um, so, uh, in terms of what happens now, there, there, was, a, there was a report uh, or a poll out today that Keir Starmer is on 53% when it comes to... Uh, and that was apparently a, a poll of members and affiliates. Um, when you see a poll like that, do you think, well, this is good, this is game on, I'd rather be the underdog, or would you rather be the frontrunner? It also said that I think it was 54% of Keir's numbers are still wavering, so it's game on. So do you have, do you have, um, do you have a sense of like, I don't know if you're polling people or whatever, do you have a sense that the ones that are wavering are wavering between you and him or, or him and Lisa Nandy? Me, obviously. Of course. I've got to believe, otherwise what's the point? Very rude of me to ask the question. Um, but do you, at this stage, I mean, there's so much more time left in the contest. Yeah. Do you think, I'm still in this to win it, or do you think I have to basically make myself undeniable for like a big, effectively shadow four officers of state? No, you've got to be in it to win it, otherwise there's no point doing it. So you, you unveiled a, a logo a bit earlier than, than most people. Um, what were the rejected designs? The logo, the rejected, there was like one really geometric looking one that just looked a bit odd. <laughs> like a sort like of a hexagon, factor. yeah, and I wasn't into that one. Why a hexagon? So that would be I don't know. five sides. Yeah, I didn't really get that either. I no. said it's just a bit weird. Six. Six. Yes, I was just testing. <laughs> <laughs> I was testing your. What would five be? Oh, pentagon. Pentagon. Yeah. I'm stupid. <laughs> oh my god! There's even a building called the Pentagon. <laughs> Fucking hell! Oh, I've been to the hexagon, by the way, to break up. Oh, fuck. How would you deal with Donald Trump if you become leader of the Labour Party or Prime Minister? I'd just be friendly. I mean, I, mean, I don't... I, I think any, any Prime Minister has a duty to try and build relationships with other countries across the world, particularly America and, and our, you know, our allies, if you like. That doesn't mean to say that I'll agree with everything that he says, and there's many things that I don't agree with Donald Trump on, and I'll be very frank about that, and I'm quite northern, so I think I'll be quite open about what we don't agree on. But what where we can agree on, I think we should build that common ground. I think he'd kind of like that. Mm. We had a great conversation, by the way, and Rebecca was very honest with me. <laughs> but what she didn't like, and I have a lot of time, I suppose, for that sort of thing. And we, we, agreed, on, we agreed on the importance for a... I think it was a blue new deal or a green one. I can't remember. The color, but... <laughs> I mean, do you think he would? He's a potential ally for, for not on the green new deal. No, I don't think he believes in climate change, does he? So, uh, and that's one of the things that's very worrying because clearly, if we can't get Donald Trump to push things forward, then you know we're not going to be in with a chance of being able to tackle climate change properly. Uh, with you obviously got opponents of your own party that you're currently facing for the leadership. Um, I asked Lisa Nandy this this time, uh, last time. Um, because these issues can be so divisive, these contests. So um, just to say, what is the most positive thing about each of them? So um, what is Emily Thornberry's biggest positive? 
She's just so bombastic. I mean, you don't know what she's going to come out with next. She's like the Brian Blessed of politics. <laughs> she's brilliant. That thing she said where the story about her coming off her bike, have you seen that? No, what's that? I think she told it at the party comes. She goes, I came off my bike outside Methodist Central Hall and I banged my head and a lot of memories started coming back and it was like, hello. <laughs> that was a good one. I was like, She's one of the funniest people I've ever met. Um, what's the nicest thing you could say about Lisa and Andy? What's her big positive? Lisa and Andy's just lovely. I think me and Lisa would probably have a great night out in the pub together, which we're going to do after this contest is finished, with Kim as well. She... And let Jess and uh, Emily. We're having a big night out. Really? Just the yeah. four of you? Yeah. Five? Five, yeah. And Jess will be invited? Yeah. Me and Jess get on in real life, you know. But uh, it was more that... Does she technically count as a leadership candidate? Yeah, she does. And I say that as, some, as, a, as a friend of hers and a, as a supporter, but, I mean, when the Wikipedia page is written about this contest, is she going to be on it? Yeah. OK, so Jess Phillips, Keir Starmer. Oh, what's the nicest thing you could say about Keir Starmer? Keir Starmer, he's just quite a calm, nice human being. I've got a lot of time for Keir. Obviously, I want to beat him in this leadership contest, and he better not get him away. I like him. <laughs> uh, uh, what's the nice thing you can say about Jess Phillips? Jess Phillips, she's just dead bubbly, Jess Phillips. And uh, so it, has there been any, like, needle? Like, the three of you are obviously touring the country doing these hustings. I remember Liz Kendall saying she became really friendly with Jeremy Corbyn throughout that mm. leadership contest. Are you slightly guarded with them backstage, or can you be entirely natural with each other? No, I think we're, we're ourselves, really. And Usually moaning about how tired we are. Uh, but do you never say, hey, Keir, that thing you said? That I did, I did, because he's he started doing this thing where, especially, because we, we draw lots at the beginning of Hustings, and if he gets number two, that means he's in the middle. And if he's in the middle, he's just started this new gesticulating thing like a tree. And me and Lisa Nandy are on either side. And last week, he got number two, and I was like, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> and I went, Keir, don't be doing that tree thing again. So I'm getting fed up with it now. You're doing all this gesticulating now. Pack it in. And he was like... <laughs> and, and did he pack it in? He did. He could have kept his arms a little bit more. So stood there. Yeah. What's what the matter with Keir Starmer? <laughs> um, but apart from that, there's been no... And did he say, I'm very sorry, I didn't realise I was doing it? He just laughed and he said, do I do that? Now he knows he does it. <laughs> because it is, politics has its harsh contentions. It is nice to know that behind the scenes, people can get on, even in a leadership contest. Yeah. I mean, is there part of you that thinks, actually, if I'm still this far behind in a fortnight, I'm fucking going for him. <laughs> like, <laughs> digging up shit, chuck it all out. How far are you prepared to go to win, I guess? No, I'm not going to be nasty, no. You could let other people be nasty. No. Other leaders have done it. No, no but I mean, it would, be, it would be, you know, you could just say, look, here's some fucking files. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what dirt there would be on Keir Starmer. I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have anything particularly in mind, but have you heard anything? <laughs> <laughs> what about Lisa Nandy? Has she got a dark past? Not that I know of, no. Fuck. Have you? No, obviously not, no. Although... You... I won't tell you anyway if I did. That's <laughs> what I... This is an off-the-record conversation. Um, uh, you said you'd been to Amsterdam when you were asked about whether you took <laughs> yeah. drugs. Is, is that where you did the drugs, in Amsterdam? 
I didn't say that I did drugs in Amsterdam. I said I either went to partake in local delicacies or I went to look at the flower markets, and it's up to you to decide why I went to Amsterdam. Okay. Um, <laughs> when you were looking at the flower market in Amsterdam, um, how long did it take you to recover? <laughs> I don't remember. I mean, is it... Many because there is, there is a genuine debate about drugs, isn't there, that, that it puts people off. I think most politicians, well, not most politicians, but a lot of leadership candidates in various parties have admitted to doing drugs. So like, it does feel like the conversation's moved on a bit. I mean, is there part of you that thinks, depending on what answer you give, you're going to determine whether people decide to go into politics or not, that it might actually put off potential, you know, talented candidates who've maybe done cocaine or weed or whatever might sit at home and go, well, there's no point in me getting involved because attitudes are still in a particular place. I think there's a wider discussion to be had on the war on drugs because we're not winning the war on drugs. Now, I don't have the answers to it. I think it needs to be more pragmatic, but I think we need to have that sensible national discussion. Um, but is it the sort of question you fear? Do you think, oh, don't ask me about drugs? Or do you think, I'm going to get asked it, so I'm going to have to just, just think about it? Just be honest, yeah. All politicians should just be honest. But the, uh, to an extent. Well, you unless they've say. done something terrible, then they shouldn't be a politician, should they? Yeah, but you can't say, if surely if someone says, have you done drugs, you can't go, yeah, starting on a bit of weed, that sort of opened <laughs> me up to the coke market, had three banging years on that, a few pills at festivals. Still do the odd line of MDMA, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> You couldn't say that, could you, really? Surely. Maybe there might be some politicians who uh, should say that. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, who do you think? Boris. Gove? <laughs> I mean, it does... So I think the public perception is probably they're all on it anyway. Yeah. So, like, why not just go? Well, they did that thing, didn't they, around um, the Houses of Parliament where they swabbed all the toilets to <laughs> see whether there was cocaine. And it was everywhere, apparently. Oh, my God. I know. Even in your office? Not in my office, no. <laughs> Everywhere apart from your office. Uh, right, let's open up the uh, floor to some questions. So if you could indicate very clearly, Jules will come round or Daisy will come round with uh, a microphone. So just put, pop your hand in the air and if we can ask for short questions and short answers, we'll try and get round uh, as many people as we can. So indicate clearly and uh, we will come to you. Yes, there's a gentleman there. Hi, Rebecca. Um, I've got the sense that Matt gave you a couple of opportunities to uh, clearly put a marker in the sand and distance yourself from Jeremy in the past. One probably over the Palestinian flags, one about Jeremy's um, reaction to the Salisbury poisoning. It felt like you couldn't quite do that. And it felt that, to be honest, it's probably the sort of thing you need to do if Labour's going to be successful in 2024. Why, why can't you be clear and put that clear marker in the ground to separate you from, from the past? I mean, I'm not measuring every single thing I do against what Jeremy's done in the past or what Tony Blair's done in the past. I'm my own individual and I'm very different. And I think in answering the question about Salisbury, I would have had a very different approach. I think I know where we got things wrong and where the language wasn't correct and what we should have done to reassure people. Do you think you'd feel bad if you distanced yourself too much from Jeremy Corbyn, that, that you're loyal to him and that would... Hurt in a way. I'm not distancing myself or being close to anyone. I am who I am. I believe what I believe in and I'm my own person. And I think it's wrong to try and equate me. I mean, people are desperate to do this and they're desperate to do it to female politicians as well. It's like, oh, you know, who's she close to? Tony Blair or, or John McDonnell or Jeremy Corbyn. It's like, enough of that. I'm just Rebecca Long Bailey. But it does help people understand, doesn't it? It helps the public go, oh, I get it, you're kind of that sort of Labour person and they're that sort of Labour person. And that, that, it, well, no it's one's kind of... saying it about Keir. No one's saying, oh, Keir's close to Jeremy or Keir's close mm. to Tony. They're saying probably Ed Miliband, aren't they, about Keir? 
I don't think they're even saying that. The most controversial thing about Ed Miliband was that apparently he's going to get made Chancellor or Shadow Chancellor. It would be very controversial if he was made Chancellor. <laughs> <laughs> it would be an astounding comeback. <laughs> Fucking hell. Um, okay, do we have... Uh, just look at this section. I'll just sort of move around the room, but if uh, people could uh, clearly indicate... Yes, the, the, uh, the gentleman that stood up by the post. Um. You were saying that you don't think you need to be less ambitious with your policies if you want to get elected, but at the same time said you had too many policies in the manifesto in the last election. So does that mean you prefer to cut some, or how do you, how do you square that? So it's not that there were too many policies, because we had a lot of the right answers to the questions that we were facing, but they should have been distinguished into two separate categories. So there's what you can deliver within five years, and then there's what's part of a longer-term programme. So many of the policies were deliverable within five years, like the Green Industrial Revolution, for example. But there were other ones that were more of an aspiration for the long-term rather than something that we'd achieve in office, like the four-day working week. But the, but the four-day working week was a long-term... That wasn't a costed policy, the four-day working week. That was a long-term aspiration that should have been part of a long-term programme. So you have your policies in the manifesto that you can deliver within five years. You pick out key ones to sell as part of your campaign, not every single one, which is what we tried to do in this general election campaign, and it just blew everybody's mind. And then you set aside the long-term ones and don't have them in the manifesto but still have them as part of a long-term programme on the side. Well, there's some other, there were some other policies in the Labour Manifesto uh, to invest in walking. I wasn't quite sure what that meant. Um, I don't even remember that There was something one. about international harmonisation of seafarers' pay. Uh, free that's, broadband. A, that's an important thing. But it felt there was some very... Uh, maximum workplace temperature, which is... That is an imagine if you're a baker, right? Or you're working well, in you're a in factory. the wrong job if you... Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I get what you I mean. Boiled. I'm sure as any man in the room will tell you, the maximum temperature of any room should be around 14 degrees C. <laughs> nice and cold. Um, I, that was one of the things I thought was quite good. You know, if Corbyn got in and people start putting the temperature up at work, call the police. <laughs> um, no, I know those things are serious, but it felt like there was a lot of stuff, I suppose, as you say, that perhaps didn't need to be in there. Exactly. I mean, most people don't read your manifesto, so it's important to pick out... What? The, well, they, well, apart from you, obviously. Yeah. But... That it's important to pick out key policies, like three or four, and an overarching message that says what the Labour Party stands for. I mean, the Conservatives won with one message, and it was just get Brexit done. That's the only policy that they had, as far as I know. So, would you, uh, oh, just on Europe, by the way, and obviously the party accepts the referendum result, do you think, and would you ever want there to be a discussion about rejoining the EU? No, I think it would be disastrous at this stage. I, don't, I wouldn't think that we should go into the next general election in 2024 saying that we want to rejoin. And I think we need to spend the next four years showing, um, building quite a positive vision, if you like, of what Britain can look like outside of the European Union. And at the same time, pressure, pressurising the government into getting that good trade deal and that close collaborative relationship but I think if we went into 2024 saying right that's it no let's start campaigning to rejoin it would be disastrous for us but maybe not 2024 but at the back of your mind do you think I mean do you feel European do you feel emotional well, it's not to we... say that many many years from now if public pressure builds and it's quite clear that people want to rejoin the EU then of course we should look at that but in the next few years no I don't think that should be an argument we we're trying to put forward. Maybe for the, not the next year, let's say maybe after 10 or 15 years, do you think the Labour Party should be part of that conversation and, and starting it and, and nurturing that idea that actually 
we need to be inside the European Union. We'd have to see what, what, how people felt in the country about things, if I'm honest. And I think to think about that now would be the wrong thing to concentrate on. OK, uh, take some more questions uh, from the audience. Uh, so this is the final question of the night, and therefore the best question ever asked. No pressure, okay. here we go. Uh, evening. In, uh, in light of the trans debate, um, Rebecca, how do you think the British people would define a man? How would they define a woman? And do you think you're on the same side or the same page as the British people? Good, light-hearted question Profound to end. Profound question to end on. <laughs> so, I think it depends on the individual that you're talking to. Um, I think what my position is, is that trans men are men and trans women are women. Okay. I mean, it, just, just in terms of the trans debate, as a politician, how difficult is it to always choose the right language or always say the right thing? On the transition, it was very complex, and the, obviously there's been a lot of discussion within the party about it. Um, but it's as simple as making sure that trans people have rights and that they're respected, that they don't have to go through such a degrading and long dehumanising process to identify as a trans person and to simplify that process and make it easier. Uh, but it's not at the expense of standing up for women's rights, because that's been the argument within the party, and making sure that women have safe spaces. I mean, it seems, I mean, I think it's hard enough sometimes for members of the public to sort of decide where they really stand on these very thorny and delicate issues. Uh, as a politician, as a female politician, it's, it's probably even harder. It's morally the right thing for us to do within the party <coughs> to make sure that whoever you are, you have the right rights and human rights and that you're respected and protected. But it's been perpetrated in the press, certainly within this leadership campaign, into a huge issue when it's not really a huge issue. Because people, things like, I'd never heard of a turf mm. until maybe six months ago, trans-exclusionary trans -exclusionary radical feminist. I mean, are you a turf? No, I'd only found out what a turf was a couple of months ago as well. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know what surf and turf is. No. I mean, I, I suppose <laughs> if you were a Russian... Uh, uh, rural worker, you could be a surf and a turf. Um, no? Pub, book, pub grub based Russian feminist banter is not uh, either funny or, uh, or indeed desirable. So, um, Rebecca, good luck with the rest of the contest. Thanks for um, Thank you so much for coming here tonight. It's been fantastic. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, just to let you know before I uh, let Rebecca go, my next guest here at the end of March is Jeremy Hunt. My slight delayed reaction on that. I thought you'd be more excited. Uh, at the end of April, it's going to be Amber Rudd. Ooh. And if no one turns up for May. <laughs> what, a, what a night we're going to have. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, as always, thank you so much for coming and for having, uh, well, for being such a, a wonderful audience. Uh, please give a huge uh, thank you to all the staff here tonight at the other palace who made tonight possible. <laughs> and please show your huge appreciation for another fantastic guest, Rebecca Long Bailey. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> 
There you go, Rebecca Long Bailey. Uh, don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And you can come and see me live, and you can get tickets for all those uh, dates through the website, mattford.com slash live. Uh, a few dates I didn't mention at the start. I'm going to York on the 19th. Always a pleasure gigging in York on the 19th of March. Uh, Annick on the 20th. Southend on the 22nd. Cambridge, always great fun on the 23rd of March. At the London South Bank on the 27th. Uh, Brighton Comedian on the 29th. Cardiff on the 2nd of April, Newcastle on the 7th of April, Glasgow on the 8th, Aberdeen on the 9th, Chorley on the 10th. The list goes on. I shall not bore you with it. Uh, Thanks, as always, for downloading this. If you could leave an iTunes review, um, it really does help. And I I don't want to become some... I don't want to get on your nerves by constantly saying I could leave an iTunes review. But just take a second to do it um, and uh, make it a nice one if you can find it within your heart. And I'll see you next week. 